all groups are definitely not created equally. Agree with that. <laughs> like some outperform others. Right. Some overachieve. Right. It's it's kind of like when the, the two plus two equals ten sort of idea. Yep. And more times than not it's they, two plus two equals one. The underachieving <laughs> groups. And we've all seen examples of both. Right. An interesting question is like, well, what's the cause of that? And on the surface, we assume it's probably like the dynamics of the group. Right. What the team's made of. The members. Characteristics. Do we have really smart people on this team? But actually, a lot of research shows that more important than the dynamics of the team, it's really how the team interacts. That is a better predictor of a team's success. And I I think if we zoom out, we've all seen examples of this. Like that does make sense. Like more important than the makeup of the team is how they interact. Mm -hmm. That determines our achievement. The question that we have to dig into, though, is what is the cause of that? What allows teams to work better together? What's that made out of? Two camps set out to answer that specific question. Like, what's the secret sauce of helping a group perform better? One was one of the world's largest tech companies. and The other was a New York Times bestselling author. They took different journeys with a very, very different approach, but they ended up landing in the exact same place. I'm Trevor. I'm Alex. Welcome to the Learner Lab podcast presented by trainugly.com. Each week, something new that can help us learn. Let's go. If you think about the nature of the work that we do these days, it's almost always on a team or at least collaborating with someone. More so than ever. And we're going to continue to head in that direction. More time spent working in groups. And once we understand that, it really illustrates how valuable this pursuit of figuring out why certain teams perform better than others really is. I hate the term game changer, but this actually is. It's like this would be a superpower to understand what creates a great group. So finding that answer matters. Right. So let's talk about the first group. Okay. It's Google. Oh. Many of you probably figured that <laughs> out from every the day. start. But we tried to create that cliffhanger. So Google spent five years researching like, okay, how do we improve the way groups work together? What are the variables that matter the most? And they actually coined this project, Project Aristotle. Kind of a shout out to Aristotle's mm-hmm. famous quote about like, a good group should add up to more than the sum of its parts. They studied over 180 teams within their company. And what they did is they came up with like a ton of different ways to measure learning, performance, and they looked at like every variable you could imagine. So these are like things that they thought might correlate to better group performance. They had their theories, but then they tested like everything. The frustrating thing was after years of going through the data, they could find like no correlations. Like they could see teams with a lot of high performers that did well Mm -hmm. and teams with a lot of high performers that didn't. So like we don't really know why this is happening. Here's a list of the variables that they found did not predict group performance at Google. Location of teammates, consensus-driven decision-making, extroversion of team members, individual performance of the team members, workload size, seniority, team size tenure what so like (laughs) that's crazy it's like those are all the things that we think matter if i was going to build a team i would base it off of those at least half of them and what they found is like there was no correlation again at google Uh after years of wrestling with this problem and finding like no answers they stumbled upon a harvard researcher whose work helped unlock this puzzle 
It was a bit out of left field. It was a bit unexpected, but it was a variable that could predict group performance and learning regardless of the team dynamic. While Google was using their own information, looking at the internal observing data that like they had. their teams, yeah, yeah. New York Times best-selling author of the Talent Code, Daniel Coyle, explored the exact same question through a very different approach. He decided to hit the road. He selected a number of high-performing groups, and his plan was: I'm just going to go observe these groups and see if there's patterns. Right, kind of see what makes them tick. Exactly. So he visited Pixar, the San Antonio Spurs, Upright Citizens Brigade, the Improv Troupe. He even hung out with a group of jewelry thieves. <laughs> so he spent like four years on the road observing great groups. He recognized like these are all very different groups doing very different things. Well, you got jewel but, thieves and sports teams. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they kind of rhyme. Good job. <laughs> that there was like some sort of like feeling, this vibe he could see and recognize in all these groups. They just felt a little different, you know, and it's a feeling that we've all had. Like you walk into a room, a restaurant, a school, especially a school. In case it's not obvious, that's Dan Coyle. And the journey that we mentioned earlier of visiting all of those groups, that was his research process for his new book, The Culture Code. You walk into a family, you walk into a locker room, and it's different. There's something going on there. Like people are switched on. They're a little more attentive. The body language is a little more open. The facial expressions are a little more open. The energy and the speed of speech is a little higher. You know when you're there. This was like, wait a minute. There's something happening between people here that is super interesting, that's, that's electric. The language we use around culture is kind of hilarious because it's like, oh, I just get that vibe. It's just got that soft, that feel, that, that soft skill that they have. Um, well, beneath that soft vibe is a really hard science that's totally fascinating. And so that's where I went. And you quickly light upon the work of Amy Edmondson at Harvard and her work on psychological safety as being just this massive thing that until recently, people really didn't talk about it in that, in that way. Remember that Harvard researcher who helped solve the Google puzzle? Of course I do. That was Amy Edmondson. This is mind-blowing to me. Google and Dan Coyle didn't collaborate. No. They were searching for the same answer to the same question in very different ways, and they landed in the same place. Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety. So who would be able to explain this concept the best? To explain Amy Edmondson's work the best? Yeah. Who, who would do it? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. Hi, I'm Amy Edmondson, and I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. Amy's been studying how groups interact since, like, the mid-90s. Now, she didn't, like, coin the term psychological safety, but she's on the forefront of showing why it's, like, the most important thing as far as how groups interact. So Amy's been researching this for decades. And has really, like, understood its power for a long time. Right. And Google and Daniel Coyle both arrived at this same place through their own research. So what is it? What is psychological <laughs> yeah, safety? That's a really good question. <laughs> so here's the game plan. This is the season finale, and we're going to go out with a bang. This is one of the most important topics we've ever touched on, and we want to do it right. We're going to talk about what this is, why it matters, and most importantly, how do you build psychological safety within a group? We have some special guests that we're going to bring in to help us with that, and I couldn't be more excited to get after this. But first, let's look at what it is. It's that we have created a work environment where we're candid, where we speak up. When we're in a group that feels like psychologically safe, we're more likely to like ask questions, experiment, try new things. We'll take the risks that matter. Yeah, ask for feedback. And honestly, we're just like more likely to be ourselves, right. be authentic. 
And all that is made possible when we feel safe and supported. Now, there's a few myths around this term psychological safety that we need to put on the table. There's this myth about good cultures that they're like these happy, happy, you know, seashell and balloon type places. And that is a massive myth. When you go and visit Pixar and you watch people work together, it's not like we, it's not, it's not happy. When you watch the San Antonio Spurs work together, it's not happy. It's a different kind of energy. It's the energy of like working on really hard problems with people that you admire. Unfortunately, in many companies, the word nice is used to connote the following. In a meeting, you say something that I think is ridiculous. I don't say it to your face because that wouldn't be nice. But I tell my colleague in the hallway. I mean, that's not really very nice if you think about it. Uh, But we use it that way of just being polite. You know, our students here at Harvard Business School, they're all, they're all using this term now. But unfortunately, some of them are using it to say, like, you can't upset anybody. You know, that it has to be purely comfortable. You know, in our classroom, you can't say something that someone might disagree with or be uncomfortable about, which, of course, is ironic because it's almost the exact opposite of what I'm, I'm all about, right? I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually all about upsetting people, but I am all about how we need to be candid and we need to be direct and we will, we will mess up. We will, we will stumble and fall, but then we're going to pick each other up, you know, spotters ready. And, and so um, I'm trying now to talk about this much more as um, a need for candor, you know, a need for, uh, you know, a belief that, even if I get it wrong and sort of step outside the lines, you know, if, if, as long as I'm sort of on purpose, I'm trying to, to do my work well or trying to make our team uh, better, then um, you will forgive me. You know, you'll catch me when I fall. You'll give me feedback, which I need and deserve. So again, it's not about being like fake happy, fake nice. It's about candor and having the, the right conversation and saying what needs to be said. Right. So that's myth number one. And number two is this idea that you have to relax your standards to create a safe environment. In fact, once again, it's kind of the opposite of that. My argument would be in order to achieve high standards in a dynamic, complex, interdependent world, you need psychological safety. Right. You need people to speak up when they're not sure. You need people to take risks that are smart, you know, that they've thought about, oh, this might work. And they try it. And, you know, it's risky to do that. And and it might work or it might not work. But either way, it's just a little bit scary, right? So it's not at all. I'm saying high performance requires, in a sense, psychological safety as long as the context is, is interdependent. Part of, part of being in a, in, a, in a great culture is you're solving hard problems together. And hard problems are hard. Like you, you don't have, there aren't easy answers where somebody can just say, oh, here, we do this. That doesn't happen. So you have to instead have to navigate through this, this complex landscape and make and, and have real arguments and, and real discussions and real debates. And that stuff is, is, is hard. Now, I know a lot of you are listening and thinking like, well, we're all not actually safe. Like my position, my starting role on this team is not technically mm-hmm. safe. My job is not technically guaranteed. That's true. All of us are human and therefore anxious about our, you know, membership in various groups uh, that matter to us. You know, this is what work is all about. It's always going to be dependent on your ability to add value. Um, and so, um, and this creates a really interesting um, potential risk. And then people go, well, wait a minute, why are you going to, you know, how am I going to feel psychologically safe if I might 
you know, be kicked off the team or fired. And actually, you know, holding back and being silent is not seen as adding value. Like you're at more risk of, you know, being asked to leave this team if we don't hear from you than if we do. Now, the the fourth myth is like, well, this is all good stuff, but I can't do it because I'm not in charge. Right. The organization's too big. I have bosses who control that stuff. Exactly. There's the good news and the bad news of the fact that psychological safety seems to be very local, right? So within companies, it varies. And, you know, the bad news is, oh, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have just a pure, you know, a completely psychologically safe organization that's just a dynamic learning organization from top to bottom and right to left. Well, yes, it would be nice, but it doesn't tend to work that way. But the good news about it being very local is it means that the real leverage is local. So each and every one of us can show up at work and make a difference in terms of creating the healthy learning climate in our team or with our colleagues. Like just how I just how I show up actually matters. It can have a it can have a profound impact on just, you know, the few people around me. That's right. That's right. The culture is the fifteen feet around you is the way I've heard it described. And I kind of I kinda of like that. Okay. So now we know sort of what it is and what it's not. Right. <laughs> Almost more it's importantly very, what it's not. Exactly. But where we need to go now is like, look, this is the Learner Lab podcast. We're concerned with learning and development. Let's look at sort of why it matters as far as learning and performance are concerned. Our brains have evolved on this planet. What are the important things we've evolved around? Like whether we're safe or not. And, and, and that is um, a massive, massive part that's been, you know, as our brains have sort of grown in complexity, that's, that's been at the core all the time. Everybody's brain in a social situation continually monitoring the environment for any signal of do I have a future with these people? Do they care about my success? Our brains are built to respond super strongly. If these aren't my people, I am not just like, I'm not just neutral. I'm out. So basically, our brain is wired to fit into groups. Yeah. And it's constantly scanning for information to answer the question, am I safe? Right. And if the answer to that question is no, we are in trouble. Right. One, when the amygdala is activated and we feel like we're not safe, learning centers of our brain like literally shut down. And let's just get to like the topic we've touched on in every episode of the Learner Lab. Action. We're probably not going to do the things that help us grow. Amy calls these learning behaviors if we don't feel safe. If you're going to be able to learn got to learn from mistakes. You've got to be able to speak up. You've got to ask for help. Like if you're going to be able to learn, you've got to feel psychologically safe. That makes perfect sense. Not going to ask questions. Not going to own my mistakes. I don't want feedback. I'm not going to try new things. I'm not going to experiment. I'm not going to step out of my comfort zone if I don't feel safe. Honestly, this is what Google discovered too. It's like we know the actions that help us grow and the things we want to do. Psychological safety is the underpinning thing that allows us to do those actions. Not only does it affect the way we learn and the learning behaviors, but it has a huge influence on our performance. Both of those things matter to anyone listening. That's it. It's the, it's the platform on which all the other cultural stuff happens. And if you lose it, you lose a lot. So you have to think of it as this, as this first you know, basic space in which you can connect. And if you want to blow up a group, blow up safety. Like That's the thing that wrecks groups. It's like the soil. The soil has to be healthy soil, and right. then you put seeds into it uh, to make 
that, that, that grow or don't grow. So it's the underpinning. So it doesn't matter what industry we're in or what field we're in. What plant we're growing. Right. The soil matters a lot. You could argue more than anything. So now that we understand what safety is, what it's not, and why it matters, let's transition to looking at how we can build it. Time to get into the weeds and come up with some like concrete applications. And the cool thing is, for almost everything we're going to touch on, it's relevant to anyone in any place, in any group, regardless of where we're at on the totem pole. Now to help us with this section, we have two special guests. We have two members of the Grinnell College women's volleyball team. This team has gone through a massive transition in the last few years. Literally four seasons ago, they won two matches. Oh, that's that's not great. <laughs> not the best. <laughs> and this previous season, they finished second in the conference and won more games than any program in school history. Wow, that's really great. Big leap. We have their head coach. My name is Eric Reagan. Uh, I'm the head volleyball coach at Grinnell College. We have one of their co-captains. I'm Nora Hill. I'm a senior captain of the Grinnell College volleyball team. Here's the cool part. The focus of the team this season was building psychological safety. And not only was it building psychological safety, but they used the book The Culture Code written by Daniel Coyle to do that. I think that The Culture Code really, I recommend every single person who works in a group, which is humans in general, read it. And best practice is telling us right now that if we can build a culture that does have a shared purpose, where people share vulnerability and they're safe enough to do so, they're going to achieve at a higher level and learn a ton along the way. To get the ball rolling with this, let's head back to our expert, Amy. Smart idea. (laughs) Yeah. She says that to build psychological safety, there's three big things we need to look at. I like to put them in three buckets and they're they're kind of temporal buckets you know first second third but i don't mean to imply a sort of simple linear path and then you're done it's a loopy ongoing journey uh but but bucket one is kind of um stage setting and and to me stage setting is kind of um, the work we do to remind ourselves and each other that we face uncertainty or challenge or interdependence or all three. So basically, it's being real about the work that we're going to do. It's going to be uncertain, and we have to acknowledge that. Absolutely. Regardless of what it is we're doing, if the goal is to grow, to innovate, to be creative, sort of the price of admission there is struggle and mistakes and failure. And it's about putting that on the table and kind of owning that, that it's not always comfortable to do these things. And when we share that and own that with our people, I think that's a great way to set this stage. Yeah. And even acknowledging that fear, it's okay to feel that fear right now, but you have all, you know, five women on the court and a bunch of women not on the court supporting you. And so even if you feel that fear, creating the safety to talk about that, I think is important. And I think another component of this is sort of connecting the broader why, like, why are we doing this? Absolutely. And getting people on board with like, hey, there's a reason that we're doing this and providing maybe the underlying science that supports it. Like, we just can't do it. We have to educate our people on the like the research behind it. Right. And that was the value of us, like reading the book together as a team starting that and like creating that buy-in in the group from the good apples or the leaders or whatever you want to call can take sort of a lot of energy up front. And so I think that you have to get in that mindset of like, this is worth it. And like, there's a reason and a purpose that I'm doing this. Cause we're really talking about the functions of a culture, right? They, the functions are, we need to stay together. That's safety. We need to share information. Well, that's vulnerability. Like that's how we share information. And we need to figure out where we're going. Well, that's, that's purpose. 
So however you do it, there's not one way to achieve those three functions. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but those have to happen because you need to, if you're in a group, you need to navigate through these complicated situations together. And the second bucket is proactive inquiry. When she touches on this in her book, The Fearless Organization, she calls this inviting engagement or inviting action. The way I see it is the the focus of this bucket is we grow through action. So it's about finding ways to encourage action. And so our people are getting the reps of sharing and asking for feedback and doing the things that build safety. And there's no definitive blueprint here, but there's a lot of ways to go about this. You know, by, by asking, by asking good questions, and that can be to subordinates, to, you know, to bosses or, or to peers. Do you have any thoughts about this product, this project, this, you know, this customer or this experience I've just had? And you would be, it would be very awkward for you not to respond. I mean, you're not going to just sit there mute when I ask you a thoughtful question. You could say, God, I really haven't thought about it and don't feel like I have something to add, but you're not going to be just mute. Um, so this kind of proactivity, and that sounds so obvious, and it is, but the reality is if you actually tape record a lot of workplace conversation, the genuine question is a rare beast. Right? There's a lot of rhetorical questions you know, I'm right, right? This, you agree with me, don't you? You know, or, um, well, wouldn't that fall apart if we did it that way? I mean, really? Okay, boss, yeah, it would fall apart if we did it that way. But, but the genuine question that kind of invites your thinking and gives people room to respond is, is pretty unusual and very powerful. And any one of us can use it. It's free, you know? I mean, for me, the number one way that I think I created safety was like by being vulnerable myself. And I think that even though it gets brought up a lot, modeling is so important in behavior. Part of inviting engagement is often modeling it. You know, if I'm unwilling to tell you the three things I just messed up, how, how can I expect you to do the same? And then the third, the third bucket is Monitor your responses, right? Because there will be in our today's workplace, and especially any time that learning is needed, there will be um, there will be bad news. There will be disappointment. There'll be dissent. There'll be things I disagree with, and I have to just you know to help foster psychological safety. I have to kind of take a deep breath and say, "Oh, that's interesting. Thanks for that clear line of sight. Um, what do you think we should do?" The big idea here is okay. When these actions start to occur, how are we responding to them? If a mistake happens, how do we respond? If we ask for feedback and get feedback, how are we responding to that? That makes a lot of sense. So if you told me that you wanted me to give you feedback, but then when I gave you feedback, you lashed out at me, I'm not going to do that again. I don't feel safe doing that. (laughs) Exactly. And this is super common. Hey, give me some honest feedback. Let's practice candor. Then you give it to me and I get real mad. It's like guess what? You're not going to continue to give that. So the way I see it is the way we respond can either encourage more action that builds the safety or it totally shuts it off. I can respond in such a way that invites more input. I can respond in such a way that invites uh, joint problem solving or both. In fact, another way to think about this response really is, do I have a productive response or an unproductive response to what comes my way? It doesn't mean, you know, it's not happy, sad, it's not good, bad. It's just, is this going to help us go in the direction we want to go? 
Uh, I think one thing that we do really, really well is celebrate mistakes. And if people are trying to develop specific things in their skill set, right? So if my teammate can recognize me struggling with that and trying to get better, that makes me feel safe and I'm more apt to do that again, which is really, really special. The way that we talk and think about mistakes is very different than teams that are really outcome focused, I think. And that comes from, you know, our philosophy as a team, but then also how we interact with each other and how you respond when someone makes an error, doesn't go the way you want, I think is very, very important. There's a guy who studies critical moments theory where it's like, look, you know, group norms get formed and like these, just these infant, like what, what happens at the first disagreement? Any group come together. What happens at the first disagreement? That is huge. That is a massive turning point for setting up a norm of how you're going to interact. Are people going to share weakness or are they not going to share weakness? In a bad culture, ten, tensions end up pulling you down. And in good cultures, tensions end up being a source of fuel because you are always turned toward them and you're always trying to, to figure them out. Everyone on the team is not going to be best friends. Mm-hmm. That's not the end goal, I think, at any one point. Because that would be not genuine, that would be fake, that would be false niceties. But I think it's about having enough of a team culture of safety and vulnerability that even if this person is not your favorite person on the team, you can still take feedback from them positively. The big idea here is that the way that we respond is either going to encourage more of those actions we want to see or shut them down. Now look, like this isn't always going to be easy and it's not going to go perfectly. No, like this is a learning process and there's going to be bumps along the way. But the idea is to be aware of setting the stage, inviting action, and being very aware of our response. I'm thinking of specific examples where we were able to have candid conversations about things and specific examples when it didn't go well, because it definitely did not go well sometimes. (laughs) And the piece that was missing when it wasn't going well is people couldn't be vulnerable because they didn't feel safe in that particular situation because they either felt attacked right? And didn't want the feedback or they felt like they were right and were potentially above what we were talking about, right? So then it does come back again to that safety piece. You know, this is what's happening here is is akin to a language. And like any language, there's sort of a, a core set of nouns and verbs, but it's a language, not of words, but of behaviors. So you, you, you send the signal with your behavior and we're built to receive those behaviors and have our brains light up in response to them. So building this safe environment isn't just like putting a poster up on the wall that, or like people walk in and we go, welcome, you're safe here. Right. right. The way that we do this is we, we send signals. And we send signals through action and behavior. That's what builds this culture. And so realizing that as a leader, whether it's a leader of a classroom or the leader of a group or the leader of a team, that you have this window in which you need to deliver that signal of safety. You need to deliver that and re-deliver that and re-deliver that because our brains are built to require that constant signal like it's okay now it's okay now it's okay now we're still connected there's a lot of different ways to do it you know every every great culture is not the same but underneath they are sending these basic behavioral signals back and forth through our actions we're sending the signal you matter you belong we're in this together that's exactly right and you can't you almost can't overdo it when it comes to that stuff you can be insincere and that doesn't work but authentic signals of like hey you know we share a connection we share a future we are in a relationship and and I'm thinking about the past and the future and you and I'm in the moment. Uh, so there's not like a color by numbers way to send belonging cues, but there's a whole sort of symphony of ways to send them. And 
you know, another one is just eating together. Like, you know, there's something that happens when people eat together and with groups that I, I've seen that they always, you know, good groups make a priority out of mealtime. You want to create signals that people matter. Like, that's why I think it's really important to spend time like meals and traveling even like on the bus, those signals matter. Yeah. And I think like, especially on a college sports team where there are new people coming in every year, it's like, they're not freshmen here. They're part of our team. And it's like, it's better for us if we can get them feeling that way right away and feeling safe. And that's where like the belonging cues come in. So like our leaders did a great job with our first years this year, right? Bringing them into our culture from day one. It's not like they have to prove themselves to be a part of GCVB. They are a part of it right away. As the season went on, having regular meetings about it. So we just don't want to talk about these things when stuff's not going right. We want to talk about it all the time so we can keep upgrading. It's like a candle you need to relight all the time. It's not like you can just sort of send them, oh, we sent them in the first first month of the year and then we're all set. Like, that's not how it works. I think that also once you feel the benefits of like being a part of a group that feels safe together, you like just want to keep reinforcing that because one, you have more successful outputs, but too, it just feels better. It's the same thing we feel with, with all great sort of coach mentors in our life. And when you ask people about their best coach, what they end up always getting around to is like, they really believed in me. They don't talk about like, oh, you had a great skill set of uh, teaching algebra, right? They don't talk about that. They talk about that sense of belief that is very individualized, which means a lot. When you say someone believes in me, you're saying they see me the same way I see me. Like they see me as a, in a special way. Um, and you can't do that without individualizing stuff. Alex, it's time to do your thing. Give them the recap. If we want to build better teams or more productive teams, then we have to invest in our culture. And the foundation for investing in a culture is psychological safety. Yep. And in order to build that, we need to set the stage. We need to invite engagement so we get those reps. And then we need to be really aware and monitor our responses to those events that happen. And don't forget those belonging cues, the constant signals that you matter, you're safe here, and that we're a team and you belong couple important things before we let you go. I'd like to give a special shout out to Nora and Eric for kind of giving us the blueprint of how to dig in and build this. Um, a huge thank you to Daniel Coyle. He's been a great mentor to us. Uh, the Culture Code is one of my favorite books I've ever read. Please check it out. And I think we have to give a ton of love to Amy Edmondson here. It's like without her work, none of this exists. And she's been in the trenches since the 90s working on this. Her book, The Fearless Organization, just came out a few months ago. Highly recommend that if you want to really dig into this research. And the final thank you is to all the learners out there. This has been the most incredible project that we've ever done. Um, we had no idea how it would turn out, but it has just blown my mind at like how supportive everyone's been. This is the end of season one many seasons to come. We're going to take a little break and we will be back soon and we can't wait to get after it again. Thank you guys.